So I'm actually at the point where I don't even know how to cover this episode. Um, because, you know, like it is considered to be probably one of the worst. I feel like having now watched it, while not a great episode, I feel that it suffers from being a Star Trek episode that if it were maybe another thing, and like a Twilight Zone episode or a horror episode of something, or like even like a Frankenstein thing, that it would be a lot more like believable or a lot more like accepted. But because it's Star Trek, I feel that there are a lot of things that unfortunately work against it. So that's how I'm looking into this episode. But before we jump in anymore, of course, we're going to get into introductions. My name is Matt coming to you from Austin and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Live long and prosper. There we are. Well, we are talking about Spock's brain this week. And honestly, I feel like one of the biggest problems with this episode is just the word brain. Yes. Right? I think that if they, if, if, if it was called something else, it would almost be a little more believable you know, but I, I just feel like with the word brain and as many, I think it's used 37 times in this episode. So, and again, I think that that does not help it. But we'll get into it. Here we go. The first heart transplant was as recent as December 3rd, 1967 in South Africa. The patient had died within 18 days amidst controversy and a huge media circus. More transplants were attempted, though, throughout 1968 to the outrage of some religious groups. Organ swapping was a hot topic that year. Gene Roddenberry, of course, wanted to jump on top of this hot topic. He spoke before a group of TV film editors. And he said that NBC had encouraged him to continue to, quote, intensify speculation on any exciting aspects of law, religion, to comment on the insanity of war, on bacteriological and other horror weapons, and also on the promises and problems of human organ transplants. So how do you up the ante from a heart transplant that just took place? You gotta go to the brain. <laughs> so I, it's funny because again, you know, if, if <clears throat> as we're gonna talk about in this episode, there are lots of, Great points, great things, great ideas, great thoughts that happen in this episode. And the idea and the problems and promises of human organ transplants, I think, is something that Star Trek could jump into. I just don't think Spock's brain is that thing. That makes sense. So, you know, likewise, I feel that there are lots of really good science fiction ideas ideas that later on in the science fiction world get developed better. Mm -hmm. um, I think they are breaking so much new ground in this episode that we, we, we see how preliminary every piece of it is because no one piece of it gets fully fleshed out. And mm -hmm. it kind of looks ridiculous because each of these pieces needed new work. I don't think it's until the Matrix before we see one of these pieces get properly handled. Although, you know, I'd have to like rewatch Blade Runner, but you know, we're talking late 80s, early yeah. 90s. 
not 1968, 1969. So Leonard Nimoy later commented about this episode saying, I think it was an interesting idea. If you do an episode called Einstein's Brain, you'd kind of know what you're dealing with. Spock has a brain power that is unusual, unique, useful, valuable, and somebody would want to steal it. So starting from that premise, if I were a producer of the series and a writer came in and says, hey, we got this idea about Spock's brain and somebody wants to steal it, I would think, interesting idea. So that's what Letter Nemo had to say. So again, everybody's so far on board with this great idea. And it may surprise you to learn that Gene Kuhn was the writer of this episode. If we take his original idea, what his original first draft, first outline was, was that the the Enterprise is working on an asteroid. Spock gets separated from the landing party. Kirk and the crew set off to find him. And when they do find him, his brain is gone. They follow, the par- they follow the particle beam, just like in the real episode, to a group of little people who are all smiles and wouldn't hurt a fly, much like the Organians, also written by Gene Kuhn. They say that they have space travel, but that they, they don't want to travel to other planets or be visited by other, other people from other planets. And they ask the crew to leave. Kirk says that he won't leave until he is sure that they don't have Spock's brain. Again, like in the real episode, the sur- the planet's surface cannot hold life. Well, different, I should say. It's not exactly the same as in the, in the episode. But Kirk calls the Enterprise, and then suddenly he hears Spock's voice. Uh, the little people then admit that they do have Spock's brain, and uh, they had to go and get it because the former brain was injured. Kirk and the crew are then knocked out when they, uh, when they try to retrieve Spock's brain. After coming to, the confrontation arises using Scott's hidden communicator. They tell Spock to shut down the life support system on the planet. The little people, of course, finally relent. But now they, at some point, they had forgotten how to do the surgery, question mark. (laughs) And after the surgery, uh, Spock tries to stand, but he falls on his face. He tries to move his arm, but his leg moves. He tries to sneeze, but he instead laughs. Spock tells McCoy not to worry about it and that he will figure out a way to overcome these issues. Uh, so that was the original uh, uh, premise of the sketch or this uh, episode. <clears throat> the problem was, again, being written by Gene Kuhn, who is, you know, known for co- bringing comedy to, to uh, Star Trek, is really unclear. And this episode tries to l- ride a fine line between being some kind of satire and being like a straight serious episode of Trek. And unfortunately, I think that the more serious they try to make this episode, the more it kind of falls on its face. Stan Robertson from NBC was uh, uh, was very confused uh, by this episode. He liked it, but he didn't understand why the little people at the end would forget how to do the surgery. So he asked that that plot point be worked on. Uh, Roddenberry thought that this episode was a little too talky. Who did? Roddenberry. That's interesting. (laughs) Right? Uh, He thought that Star Trek Now was seen too much as an action-adventure show with sci-fi elements, and he wanted to make sure that that we stuck with that working formula. Uh Uh-huh. 
It was Robert Justman who added the ideas of the multiple planets so that Kirk would have to choose which planet, adding more, you know, oh my God, is he going to get this right or not? Roddenberry writes to uh, Freiburg asking for more of Kirk's feelings of loss of Spock. But the problem was at this point that our showrunner Freiberger and his partner Arthur Singer were conflicted still uh, by some of the ideas that he was given by Roddenberry, right? Roddenberry was constantly telling him, like, these are formal men. These are military men. They don't show emotions. They don't do this. And then Roddenberry will come back around and be like, hey, can we have a scene where Kirk is very conflicted and uh, feels bad about the loss of Spock? So that's why in this episode, we really don't get Kirk, a scene where Kirk is like, I've got to get Spock. You know, uh, I've lost Spock. It's there, but it's understated. And, you know, we don't have a big scene about it. Yeah, so it seems like Kirk is driven to recover Spock's brain. Uh Uh-huh. But we don't get a, what have they done to my friend? Right. We, We need to restore Spock because Spock is a person with autonomy who should, like, have his own brain back. <laughs> yes. It's a great point. No. It's really about like, it's a MacGuffin. Uh-huh. Which is too bad because yeah. it's like a an important part of an important character. Yeah, exactly. In the writing of this episode, Gene Kuhn was also working on Spectre the Gun while also beginning his other job on It Takes a Thief for Universal. While everyone was happy with the speed in which Gene Kuhn was writing, they weren't as happy with some of the logical leaps that he was having to take because he was not being able to spend as much time thinking through each plot. I love how uh, uh, the author Cushman puts it in the book. He says, the always reliable Gene Kuhn had now been replaced by the overwhelmed and haphazard Lee Cronin, which of course was his, uh, his fake name as he was writing for season three of Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry writes 25 pages of notes, some of which we'll talk about later, uh, but he also really liked and wanted to expand upon the idea of Spock being fascinated by this situation he was in, running a uh, running an entire city. It was Arthur Simon, though, who did the final rewrite on this. Pete Sloman of the uh, DeForest Research Institute Uh, said about this episode later that Spock's brain could have been handled better, but it was totally outside the realm of possibility. This is something that that happens a lot in science fiction writing, where the concept of how how do we do something outrageous outweighs how do we tell a believable story. It's a difficult thing to do. Science should not drive the drama, but the science needs to be honored to the best of the ability as far as we know it. It is a very tight and very narrow sort of walkway that Roddenberry and everybody involved in Star Trek were on. The scientific accuracy of these episodes could have been a lot better, but it also could have been way worse. Mark Daniels directs this episode. This is his 14th Star Trek episode. It would also be his last. He and and Freiburg did not get along, and uh, he decided, eh, I'm getting other work doing other shows like Hogan's Heroes. I can uh, not deal with these people anymore. So uh, this was his last Star Trek episode. And off he goes. Uh, that's all I have on the behind the scenes stuff. If you're ready, let's uh, let's get into it. 
captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So we start off this episode with the Enterprise following a new ship that we had never seen before. It's a bit, it's a bit stumpy. I think it's a little small. So uh, at the beginning of this episode, we get a lot of like just staring at the screen, right? We get almost like 50 seconds of the beginning of this episode before anybody even says anything. It is uh, mounting the tension as we get closer and closer to the ship. We know nothing about it. They scan it. They can't see anything. They've uh, all the hails have gone unnoticed. Scott himself loves the ship design and is wistful of its iron propulsion. Could teach us a thing or two, he says. Now, of course, in Star Wars, we know that uh, TIE Fighter stands for Twin Ion Engine. But the TIE Fighters don't have light speed. But apparently this ship does. And that was ion propulsion. So in Next Generation, ion propulsion powered by fusion reactors is how the impulse engines work. Oh, okay. So the ship somehow gets away from, uh, well, I guess they've got a like six hour head start so, a little bit later, but. They have to follow that particle trail. Exactly. Spock sees the transfer beam uh, being directed uh, to the bridge. Uhura calls for security. Then it's a woman in go-go boots, of course. She appears on the bridge. Security arrives, but seeing them, the lady then knocks out everybody with her crazy wrist contraption. She then knocks everyone else out on the ship. She touches Spock's head as we go to commercial. Credits. Now, here we see again early on. I always talk about these teasers because I think that most of them are very tightly written, and this one isn't any worse. Uh, you know, we get this lady. She beams aboard the, the ship. Who is she? We see that she obviously wants Spock. What does she want Spock for? Uh, and they appear to have some sort of extra powerful technology. At least that's kind of what Scott is lean, leading to, what he says it. But, you know, we don't know what it is. We don't know what they want. We don't know what's going on. Perfect writing to uh, a, a teaser. Back to it. The crew is shown uh, knocked out. But as the power comes alive on the ship, Oddly, so do the people. Kirk notices that Spock is missing. And just as he does, Bones calls up and tells him that he's got to come down here right now. Kirk enters sickbay with Scott. Bones tells him he's on complete life support. Kirk asks, is he dead? Well, he's, he's worse than dead, says Bones. Didn't know there could be worse than dead, but apparently there is. Kirk asks, Bones, what's the mystery? His brain is gone, says Bones. His brain is gone. Good on DeForest Kelly for being able to deliver that line a little bit straight. I think this is this is what, kind of what I was saying earlier on in this episode, was is that it's just, it's lines like that that sort of, they don't help. Right. They don't help the, the, the weirdness of this episode. His brain is gone. They're simultaneously... Strange and pedestrian. Mm-hmm. Yes. We get more of that, too, from the, the leader lady later on. Uh, Kirk is shocked to find out the brain is gone. Bones tells us that the brain is not there, but his autonomic 
systems uh, somehow managed to keep going because of that Vulcan physique. How long can he last? Asks Kirk. Unknown, says Bones. His Vulcan physique limits what he can do. Although... Oh, so yeah. So this is confusing to me. So he says, unknown. His Vulcan physique limits what he can do. Limits what I can do. Uh, although he did just say that his autonomic system was kept going without the brain. So if we attach something that keeps his life systems going, why couldn't he be there eternally? I guess because we need a ticking clock on the episode. <laughs> Anyway, Kirk says, uh, Spock has got to come with us. Bones is like, where? Where are we going? In search of his brain. Again, great on Shatner for being able to deliver this sincerely in the moment. Right. In search of his brain. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how else, how else to rewrite that line, unfortunately, to make it not as weird, you know, in search of his brain. Right. Well, we got to go find it. I don't know, you know, something like that. I don't know. Without actually using the word brain, I think would have helped. But anyway. Or we need to restore Spock. Yes, there you go. There you go. That's great. <laughs> I write, it's possible at this part that I may be thinking this is why this episode is so pooped on is because of crazy lines like that, right? It's because they people have to say things, even with sincere acting, even a well-written line like, uh, you know, in search of his brain is still going to sound Goofy. still going to sound weird. Yeah. So, like, here's Go a ahead. here's a kind of next generation solution to this problem. Okay. Um, and it's going to hint at one of the the cool technologies that we do get in in this episode. So. They are uploading and downloading information. So you may recall from the Matrix, he needs to know how to fly a helicopter. So he just downloads that mm -hmm. and flies a helicopter. Yep. Well, if you could do that, one of the things they could have done instead of physically taking Spock's brain would be just to upload all the data and not leave anything behind. Right. And you could totally imagine the, the Dr. Crusher, like the... You know, X, Y levels are super low. Uh, it, it's, as, it's as though all of his knowledge was removed, you know, kind of a thing, right? And so it's like the aliens came, uploaded his brain, didn't leave anything for him, yeah. didn't make a copy, just took the knowledge. And if that had been happened, like your brain is still in your head, it just is devoid of all of your knowledge. Almost yes. what happened when uh, Viger zapped Uhura. Right. Right, rendering Uhura a child. You know, so Sp Spock would have been able to walk or been taught to walk or, you know, yeah. in theoretically hours or whatever, and then you could have him ambling around behind them, but, like, staring curiously at doorknobs and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, well, and the and idea you get... was that they took his data, his, you know, his think the, the his thoughts... His knowledge, that would have been, I think, better than the idea that, no, they physically removed his brain. Exactly. And then, Although, you, could have, and then you could have lines like, uh, we have to find his consciousness. Right. You know what I mean? Which automatically sounds better already than, we got to go find his brain. Yeah. And, and, you know, 
perhaps we could have introduced the Vulcan idea of Katra, or, you know. Yeah, 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 there you go, yeah. So, <laughs> what follows that is another unfortunate uh, Shatner line. He has to say, uh, uh, so Bones is asking, like, why do we got to take Spock's body with him, with us? And uh, Kirk has to say, because the moment we find it, we have to put it back in. So we get the 24-hour ticking clock going on here. We got to find him within 24 hours. Let's keep an eye on it out in our travels, right? Let's let's look around, you know? Maybe it's in a seat cushion. <laughs> Maybe he dropped it on the last planet. We got to find it. <laughs> we need to retrace our steps. Right, exactly. <laughs> so one of the really cool things that happens in this episode is the rear projection that we see in this with the stars flying first, and then we get the, the whole scene with the map. All that stuff looks really cool. It's fun to see, like, Kirk actually standing in front of the, in front of the, uh, the view screen, as opposed to them just always staring at it and then cutting to it. Right. Uh, we get this whole scene of Chekhov describing Class M planets in the system, uh, nearest to where we lost the uh, particle trail from the ion drives. Uh, this is a thing that Roddenberry asked for because we were trying to, you know, develop Chekhov more this season. So he's kind of the Spock substitute in this episode. In fact, in this scene, it reveals a weakness that Star Trek has in which Spock has become Mr. Exposition. Mm -hmm. This is a good scene of a team working a problem. You've yes. got Kirk, Sulu, Chekhov. Everybody's contributing stuff. Everyone's, you know, got ideas and, and adding and bouncing ideas and, and developing ideas. It, it looks like, you know, good teamwork, good. We see a lot of this in the first season. Uh -huh. like before Spock becomes Mr. Exposition. Yeah, the info dump. Yeah. And uh, it, it kind of reminds us in a sense of, like, what we're missing when we have too much Spock. Chekhov, unfortunately, does not have enough information to uh, for Kirk to be able to make his his suggestions or for to make his decision. Uh, none of these planets could have made the ship that they are following. Uhura picks up an energy signal on Planet Six, a glacial planet, except for in the tropical zone, very primitive. Kirk says, "We can't guess wrong. I have eight hours and thirty six minutes in which to find him." This is, of course, assuming McCoy's 24 hours wasn't just a guess. Right. Uhura then asks the best question, what do they want with Spock's brain? They choose Planet 6 and its weird energy readings. Kirk tells Uhura to tell the transporter room to get ready because we're going to be beaming down. And then she gets up. Where's she going? She gonna walk down there and tell him? Uh, she, was she in Spock's seat and has to move back over to hers? Uh, it's very confusing. I don't know what's going on there. And then we cut back to Kirk as he says, "And if we're wrong, Spock is dead." Dun dun dun. Commercial. Back at. They land on the glacial planet. It's a nice background uh, matte painting they got for this one. They all pull out their tricorders and start scanning. 
Scott finds uh, evidence on his tricorder of the primitives on the planets. They are large. Kirk says, let's try and keep wide berth with them. Scott stands again and sees the, sees the primitives have moved closer. They set their phasers to stun. They skulk around looking for the primitives when suddenly the primitives attack, throwing stones and clubs, all of which wildly miss. Kirk then stuns one of the group and the rest run off. Kirk bends down to talk to the primitive and luckily, this primitive can speak English. Whew, that was lucky. That was a lucky thing. So in this script, of course, Roddenberry had originally, not Roddenberry, sorry, uh, Gene Kuhn had originally come up with the idea of like, let's use the universal translator. Right. But Roddenberry says, no. He says, quoting Roddenberry here, in this script, Kirk and the others find it necessary to use the translator device to talk to the men, but seem not to need this device when communicating with the women. Why? I rather suspect that Kuhn decided on this so that Kirk and the others would be equipped with his translating device, which would enable them to finally contact Spock's brain, although I do think a communicator would probably work just as well. And this would not bring up in the audience's mind this unfortunate question. How come our people can talk to aliens wherever they go? If a translator device becomes necessary, the only believable way we can handle this is to have the creatures speak their foreign language and then have the translator device delay an instant while it computes, which means that the translator device itself interprets it into English. If we do figure we have a translator, let's see that it works believably. As now indicated, it is somewhat unbelievably miraculous that we have all these male savages speaking in the perfect sync sound. It is because of this problem I've decided not to establish communicators as good translators as envisioned, as envisioned in the original Star Trek format. So the, this does uh, get lampshaded a little bit in uh, one of the new Strange New Worlds episodes. Oh, what are they saying that? It's the one with the comet. Okay. And uh, they identify themselves as shepherds. And Pike looks at his communication officer and they're like, that's what the translator's giving us. <laughs> That's right. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and then, you know, the rest of the episode, they're kind of like coming up with substitute words for shepherds. Salads is more like it. Yes. Yes, yes. That's right. I did watch that one. Or at least I'm in the middle of that one. I can't remember. I don't think that was the first episode, so that may be the second episode. Yeah, I think it's the second one. Anyway, putting this trope aside, we find ourselves, we find out that there are others on the planet. Small, like Kirk, not large and strong like the others. Who are the others? They deliver pain and delight. They will come for you. There are apparently no women either, I notice. How is this possible? But I do have a hunch. I'm not ready to reveal that hunch yet. Kirk then asks the large men to take them to the others, but the man refuses, scared to death. Luckily, Chekhov has found a huge foundation in, the, in another direction. Looking for an entrance, they find this little cave with weapons and food, plus a little electric tripwire. Is this a trap? The men, uh, to keep the men from coming in? Kirk beams down McCoy with Spock. Spock has a fake brain on his head, and uh, they're able to control him with a remote control. And it's funny, too, uh, the kind of remote control that they have, because it's it, it's like the old robot, you know, 
remote controls we used to have back in the day, right? Yeah, I made the clicking sound. Yeah. And there are only like six buttons on the remote control that do everything. Yep. Uh, they enter uh, the cave, keeping Chekhov and the, uh, and the security guys up top. They enter the cave again, trip the electrical wire, which sends them down in an elevator. When the doors open again, another female appears and tries to use her wrist thing, but Kirk fires a stun shot before she can. Well, my hunch was at this point when I was, because again, I am very savvy to these things, uh, that the women must be uh, down, uh, must be down somewhere else, hiding away, and that uh, there is very little interaction between the males and the females. But I did not suspect that the females would be so uh, atrophied, as Bones puts it, in their brains, because the machines are doing everything for them. But we'll get there. Well, there's that. And there's also, they have this downloadable brain technology, right? Mm -hmm. So in one sense, it's just matrix. to download what you need uh -huh. and not engage in lots of schooling, which is unproductive. You know, when you, when sure. you need to operate machinery, we'll give you engineering machinery knowledge. And then when you're done, we'll remove it because you don't need that. Yeah. And if you're going to cook food, we're going to teach you to be a great chef. And then when you're done, we'll... Upload that back, and that's pretty handy. That seems yeah. that seems futuristic. Yep, that's true. In fact, you could probably become a great brain surgeon if someone downloaded the right information. <laughs> You're probably right. Hope it lasts long enough. McCoy then revives the lady that they stunned, but she knows nothing about a brain. Brain? What is brain? <laughs> That's like, right, exactly. But uh, Bone says that her brain is that of a child's. Scott is trying to get uh, the communication reading and discover Spock's brain, but he has no that help. Makes in sense because if we, if if Spock, like in my my hypothetical, you know, reworking, if Spock was childlike himself, they'd be like, strange. These, you know, creature the. People that we've encountered are childlike, much like Spock. There's got to be a connection. Mm. We're on, you know, we're we're on the right trail. Right. Uh, Spock, unfortunately, is no help in finding himself. <laughs> they set off down the hallway and they find the woman who they saw aboard the Enterprise. He calls out to her, but she uses her wrist thingy to knock everybody out. How rude! <clears throat> Not everyone, of course, because Spock still stands. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, but the woman is confused. We close up in on her. I thought that we were going to commercial, but we're not going to commercial. The woman is confused, and we zoom in on her, and then we close in on the bodies of Scott, Bo Scott Bones, and Kirk, and then we get another dun, 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 and then we go to commercial. Very weird that they do a double dun, dun, dun moment before they go to commercial, but what can you do? It sounds like this. They thought they had that much reveal. 
that are uh -huh. required too. That's right. Uh, back at it, one of the ladies is feeding one of the primitives' males. The same lady who came aboard the Enterprise seems to be the one in charge. She wakes up the men. She asks who they are, why they are here. Kirk rises. Something to speak, she says. Why do you have Spock's brain? Who is Spock? This, this is Spock, says Kirk. She's still very confused. She knows nothing of the words that he speaks. We only know below and there above, she says. Bone steps in, saying that she doesn't seem capable of having done surgery. Kirk relents. You can see it on his face. He wonders what the hell is going on here. The main lady then complains about them hurting Luma. Kirk apologizes. Then they are trying to uh, connect the ideas of machine to the leader lady's head, right? She still doesn't get it, though. Like, why is there no sun and yet there is light? Why is there fresh air and yet we are closed off? She doesn't get it. Who is in charge here, says Kirk. We want to talk to them. I am in charge, she says. There is no other. Someone must be in control of all of this. Control, she asks. Controller? She says, oh, they hop on this. Yes, this is it. She's like, nope, it is forbidden. You can't. Uh, they continue to try to plead with her. We must talk to somebody about Spock's brain, says Bones. Brain and brain. What is brain, she says. <laughs> I, found out, I found out later that this is obviously one of the big lines that comes out of this episode. It's one of the big yeah, lines yeah. everyone makes fun of. She thinks, and then she's like, is it the controller? McCoy explains that, yes, in a way, your brain does control the body. And uh, then Kirk has figured it out. Spock's brain is in control of everything now. Kirk then drops to his knees and says, oh, leader, we have come from a faraway place to learn from your controller. I thought that felt a bit late for that, and apparently so did she. She says, no, you've already met me. I know what you're trying to do. He asks again to see the controller, but she forbids it. Luma then says that they should not be allowed. And the leader lady says that they won't be, pressing the button on her wrist controller. <laughs> wrist controller, you see what I did there? Uh, and then the crew is tortured with pain until they are knocked out. And there again, Spock sits. Back on the Enterprise, Sulu is giving us a log recapping most of the plot that's happened. Uh, we then cut back down to the planet. The guys are waking up, complaining about the pain that they've endured. I didn't know anybody could endure this kind of pain, pain says uh, Bones. Pain? Pain? What is pain? <laughs> uh, they attempt to walk out of the room, but they are blocked by a guard. They attempt to get their weapons, but they are blocked by a guard. Meanwhile, Scotty can't get over the genius that it would take to build such a place as this. But how does Spock's brain fit into all of this? Scotty asks. Million dollar question, of course. Even I'm still wondering. They then overpower the guards uh, in quite a brawl. Kirk then grabs his communicator and tries to talk to Spock. He eventually succeeds, but at first, Spock is very little help. Luckily, the editors have made it much more helpful for us. As he talks about, as Spock talks about having a body, 
we see a flash of a machine that may hold Spock's brain. And then he continues to tell us that his mandula oblongata is busy working. It's like autonomic work. We see flashes of other things occur at this moment as well. Kirk is annoyed, not understanding what Spock is telling him. He tells him to be quiet. We don't have time for this. He then tells Spock that uh, we're here to put his brain back in his body. But Spock, of course, doesn't think that even Bones is up for it. Kirk tells him, it must be possible. If it can be taken out, it can be put back in. But Spock thinks it's all too preposterous, and that will never happen. Spock then sends them a signal, which the crew then follows down a small hall hallway into a small room. Which reveals that Spock, despite being the controller, is unaware of the knowledge input device. Mm-hmm, exactly. We'll get to something about that, too, in a minute. Uh, along the way, Kirk asks about the belts that they are wearing, if there was any way to remove them. Spock tells them that the only way to do that is to hit the red button on the leader lady's wrist controller. In the room, the leader lady hears them enter and zaps them immediately. But Bones tells Kirk to use the remote to get Spock to help them. Crawling on the ground, reaching for the remote, somehow using only six buttons that exist on the remote control. They have Spock walk over, grab the woman's arm, and then press the red button on the middle of the controller. Must be able to do a lot with those six buttons. Now, free, Kirk tries to get uh, to help Spock get out of the machine. The leader lady yells that the brain they had had died and that Spock brain will last for 10,000 years. But if they take out Spock's brain, they will all die. Kirk finally gets what Spock was saying earlier. Uh, his autonomic system working, circulating air, pumping fuel. This is what the machine is having him do. The leader lady again says, you can't have it. It's Spock's brain, lady. He can have it back. Well, yeah. Uh, Kirk pushes her, uh, continues to push her. How did you remove the brain before? She said, I put on the head of old knowledge. That's when we hear Bones explain that their brains have atrophied. She points to the head of old knowledge, which looks like an old, like, hair dryer from a 1970s yeah. hair salon with, like, so, silver spikes shooting out of the top. And I think this is because, like, for us, the idea of upload and download, super mm -hmm. easy. We would have done it with a beam of light. Right. Right. Because we're totally cool with the idea that, like, I buy a phone or I, I, I get data to my phone or I buy a book on Kindle and it just whisper synced to my Kindle. Right. Or, like, we're uploading and downloading all the time and we don't need to see the device working to go, ah, downloading is occurring. But not the case in, for the audience watching a TV show in 1969, right? Yeah. yeah they yeah. need to see the device because uploading and downloading is not a thing. And so he's got to put on the, and they got to invent a thing for him to wear. And then he's got to make faces while he's wearing it. <laughs> yep. Because that's how we know that like downloading is occurring. So, I mean, that's, 
that's a limitation of getting ahead of your audience in terms of the science fiction or not giving it to us in bite-sized chunks along the way so that when we get to the, su- the scene and he's hit by a beam of light and he's like, I understand what must be done. We're like, ooh, they downloaded the, the knowledge. Right. So uh, Kirk grabs the helmet and forces it onto the, the leader lady. So much for consent, I guess. <laughs> the machine whirs and sparks, and then she comes to. She's no longer talking the baby talk she was earlier in the episode. She's now using full sentences with big words. Uh, not only does she gain the knowledge, but it was also her ability that helped make the surgery possible. And she now has the knowledge brought to her by the crew. As she points a phaser directly at Kirk, set for kill. Dun, 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 commercial. Back from it. The leader doesn't understand why the needs of her people is outweighed by the needs of their friend, Spock. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> right? Or the one. It's a, very, uh, it's a very great question because... Obviously, we don't want to get into the talk of the Prime Directive in this episode. Oh, no, no. Because they are trampling all over it. We'll just call them a warp-capable species and be done with it. <laughs> Clearly. Well, if they put on the leader helmet, who knows? Yep. The leader will not die. He will live for the next 10,000 years. But Spock is dying right now. You're killing him, he says, pointing to the uh, body of Spock. Scott then pretends to faint, which uh, steals the leader lady's reaction, and then Kirk grabs the phaser away from her. The problem is, he still can't convince her to perform the actual surgery. I will not betray my people, she says. The controller will stay. Bones then offers to try and learn the knowledge from the machine. Spock counters saying that uh, she is an alien and the technology could destroy Bones. Spock says that Bones should not risk his life for him. But now, McCoy makes the plea that this knowledge could be retained and brought back to the Federation. Think of all the good that could come of it, he says. So he does it. He gets put into the knowledge. And he also gets a perm. No, maybe not. Maybe not. He's got to move on. That's right. Uh, As he comes out of it, with the knowledge, he says, a child could do it. So, Bones performs the surgery. It is quickly wrapped up that the... That... So, okay. So now we get this whole other, like, side storyline going on about what's going to happen to these people, right? which is wrapped up real quick in this one line where she's basically like, what are me and my people going to do now? And then Kirk's like, well, you're just going to have to go live up on the, uh, on the top of the world. Well, the men's aren't going to help us. I think that you will find that they will is basically how it goes. And then that's it. That whole storyline's wrapped up. We don't have to worry but, about this. And the Federation people. will help you. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> because again, I've trampled all over the prime directive. So <laughs> they will feel responsible. But while all this is happening, Bones starts to freak out. What am I supposed to do? He keeps saying. I have forgotten, he keeps saying. But luckily, after somehow reconnecting Spock's speech center, 
Spock helps connect the rest of his nerve endings together. Well, that worked out. I guess they're color coded or something, huh? This is for the right right leg. This is for the connect left the leg. Wire into the green <laughs> slot. Exactly. This is the he big piggy. The this is the little piggy. Yeah. Uh, Spock then sits up. His hair looks perfect. No scars or anything. Uh, Spock then starts to give us some fascinating world building before Bones then makes a joke about not re reconnecting his mouth, which I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Kirk says, well, we knew it was a risk. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's all over. Well, and again, that, that's so. the, that information was interesting, but it yes. should have been interspersed throughout their, like, getting to this point. Right, not just like rushed at the end with with Nimoy having to quickly Info feed us up. that information. Yeah. So, on the one hand, I think what they were going for with a physical brain transportation okay. is an organic, cybernetic, you know, it's the Borg, right? Right. They need a Borg queen. And that's yeah. what he's going to become. Uh-huh. Uh, but none of the technology looks organic or like an like or cybernetic, uh, you know, organic technological combination. Instead, we have the same clean lines that you know we see on the Enterprise or in two thousand one or Cloud City Bespin. Right. You know, everything looks clean and you know nineteen sixties high tech, which would totally make sense if what they were doing is merely uploading his brain. And stealing it. And in which case, the solution would be, could we just make a copy? Yes. Right? We'll just, you know, download his brain back in there, but we're going to leave, you know, a copy here to run your civilization. So you've got the, you know, the, the opportunity to, like, physically steal his brain and have a cool organic society, right? Uh -huh. Which the shapes are bulbous and... You know, we see some of that starting in the 70s and, you know, uh, with their species. I forget what it is. The one that, like, hunts the Borg. So you got the Borg and the species that hunts the Borg. You know, those are organic technological combos, right? Those are interesting. Right. And stealing Spock's brain would have made sense for that. In the same way that, like, you go to India, someone steals your kidney and gives it to a dude who needs a kidney, right? They right. need a brain. You had a brain. We stole it. Sorry about that, but we have a whole civilization to run. And then everything is organic and cybernetic, and you're like, ooh, that's, this is weird and freaky and foreshadowing of the board. But I think it's also something that we didn't really hit on in the episode is that all that information, like how to do the brain surgery and all that stuff, that's yeah. all in the computer. That's, that's not right. necessarily in Spock's brain. So all that right. information is still there. For them right. to use and so then they the other cool technology they have in this episode is the downloadable information right right which just doesn't feel like it's cool because and i think it's because the audience isn't like to us it's mundane right right and to them it was like how do you explain that i'm moving information from the computer to mccoy or to these ladies yeah. you know they do it and it's it's cool in the episode but they don't make it look cool which i think is a problem of like how they envisioned it yeah or how they had to portray it to the audience and i think if they had 
solve those two problems, and there's two ways they could have solved Spock's brain. One is we're going to just download it, and then we just don't leave a copy for Spock. Right. Because we didn't think of him as a person who needed to be protected. Or we physically take his brain, but everything is cybernetic and organic machine hybrid. Mm-hmm. Those both would have been cool solutions to this problem. And then the downloadable thing, I think, w- you know, would have been cool if they knew how to do it. And so I watch these episodes and I'm like, I get it. I see what you're doing. It's very interesting. It's very forward thinking sci-fi. Right. You guys didn't have, as we talked about, we've been under budget the whole season or over budget. Yep. So it's not like they're able to say, you know, let's take a little more time on this episode and get it right. Because yep. they're under the time pressure. They're under the financial pressure. And I don't know that they necessarily could have made it as cool as we could imagine it being because, you know, right. doing this kind of stuff is easy for us. Mm-hmm. We're, well, we're, uh, I mean, so you've seen episode two of Strange New Worlds, right? Okay. They've got this cool alien intelligence they encounter on the comet. Yep. That's cool. They pulled that off. We're like, wow, I get it. I, I'm with it. It wasn't like, this is goofy. What's going on? How could they say the word brain 37 times? Right. Well, like I said, too, I, th- I, I again, just changing it from brain to consciousness would have, I think, helped immensely in yeah. how this episode is viewed. But interestingly, you said some, some of those things because uh, Nimoy wrote an article in Daily Variety in 1968, right? That praises any television that is creatively successful. You know, he basically goes on to say all the things that we've been saying all along, right? Is that between budget and time constraints, and this is a quote from him, the very basic form of creativity is undermined. Yeah. Because, you know, at some point they're just like, well, we don't have any more money to throw at it, or we don't have any more time to try and make this script better. Let's move on, you know? So it's, uh, obviously it sucks. (laughs) <laughs> it sucks for those of us watching it and wanting wanting a little bit more out of it. Uh, you know, we were also, as I stated earlier in the episode, you know, we're also dealing with Gene Kuhn, who's like trying to write like four scripts all at one time. Yeah. You know? And so he, too, is under a huge time constraint that he wasn't under normally when he was just working for Trek. So. Despite how this episode was now viewed, reviews at the time were mostly favorable. Uh, so much so that Star Trek won the night in its premiere episode. It won with 36% of the televisions tuned into this episode. But I do have to wonder if a better episode would have aired if we would have gotten the Enterprise incident or, you know, one of those other four that we've watched uh-huh. that were amazing that, you know, how much better they would have had in sustaining better numbers across the uh, sure. Cross. It's hard to say. But despite the new sets and the number of increased extras, uh, production finished $3,676 under budget. Surprise. Lowering the season deficit now to only $16,796, which is uh, which is great. So that uh, it means that slowly but surely they are doing what uh, Paramount wants them to do. So that's great. That is all I've got. Anything else you want to mention that you haven't gotten to yet? No, I think we pretty much uh, hit it all. 
Yeah. I Again, think with a lot of potential, a lot of good science science fiction ideas mm-hmm. that just don't get executed well. Yeah, it's one of the interesting things that I was reading in the book is that a lot of people were saying like it, the ideas behind this episode were fantastic, and unfortunately, just in the execution in the end, yeah. in 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 both the writing and the you know final production uh, spin put on it, just unfortunately so, didn't help it. We've been talking about uh, Obi Wan a little bit, uh-huh. and I really feel that the fact that they they were able to basically sit on this for twenty years, yeah, like let the ideas ferment, let Ewan McGregor and and whoever else was coming up with this as a brainchild, you know, give it the thought it needed over however long it took to develop this and say, you know, wh- where is he now and you know, how does he get to the, the hermit in the desert? Yep. And spending that time and not saying, well, we got we to gotta make a new movie in two years, so in what would it have been, 2005 or something, they're trying to yeah. make the Obi-Wan series, they wouldn't have been ready, right? Well, I mean, that's exactly what happened with the sequel trilogy, is that they were like, well, we've got this date. We gotta. We said that this movie was going to be coming out, you know, May of 2015, so let's get a, let's get it cranked up, and then the next movie will be out two years later, so... Yeah. Especially then, if you don't have... If you're going to reject Lucas's ideas, you know, which... Because then you're just in a, in a question of developing something you've already got and yep. realizing the vision rather than... Exactly. You already have a plan. Yeah. But, you know, going back to Obi-Wan, too, I read that, you know, like, as early as, you know, 2015, 2016, they started writing this as a movie. And not only was it going to be one movie, but it was going to be a trilogy of movies. Yeah. And that basically everything we saw in these first six episodes was the first movie. So, you know, it was basically... The first movie was supposed to be him just coming to terms with the fact like, uh, oh, okay, I've done this. Anakin's, you know, this. And, you know, um, and he's just reconnecting with the Force, basically. And then with the second movie, now whether or not they do this with the second season of Kenobi or not, but what the second movie then was supposed to be was basically him preparing himself for what happens in episode four, right? Finally realizing that maybe through Qui-Gon or through some kind of prophecy that he was going to have to basically sacrifice himself. You know, even though he thinks like, hey, I'm going to be around forever, but he doesn't know when that sacrifice will take place. And just sort of him coming with the coming to terms with the idea of like to truly be a hero, maybe a sacrifice is involved. So that's what they said the second story was about. We'll see if they do that with the second season of that show. But with that said, that'll about wrap it up for this episode. Next week, is there no truth in beauty? Great. That's the episode. I, I think you'll like it. Oh, good. I'm excited. Uh, again, didn't hate this episode, uh, but definitely see why, you know, along the throughout the years, people have sort of been poo-pooing it, you know? Yeah. Again, just like a lot of the things I was saying, a lot of the dialogue isn't as cheap. And, you know, even Roddenberry points out that, like, there are times when Shatner's stage acting will take over. Yeah. And... It, you know, it'll look like he's overacting, even though all he's doing is what is, you know, he was used to stage-wise. So, all right. Well, that'll wrap it up uh, for another two weeks. My name is Matt coming to you from Austin, saying goodbye, and saying goodbye from Planet Houston's my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. I'm a doctor, not a database. <laughs> and on that bombshell, we'll see you all next week. In two weeks. <laughs>